Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. The more of the heavy lifting you want the return to do, the more risk you have to be prepared to take and the more uncertain achieving that outcome is. So you can move any two of those three levers. And that's the real piece about investing that a lot of people jump straight for. I've got $5,000 to invest. What should I buy? Mm. Whereas there's a couple of uh, steps. There's a lot of steps in the way. And the answer will not be the same for everyone. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatua. ETFs can be a good alternative to picking your own share portfolio, but they can quickly become just as confusing. If you want an index hugger, how can you allow for diversification and risk management? Joining me today to unravel the intricacies of ETF investing is Vince Scully. G'day Vince. G'day Phil. Vince Scully is the CEO and founder of LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online advice. So let's get started. Why should investors use ETFs rather than a well-diversified portfolio of hand-picked individual stocks? That's a great question, hmm. but it's possibly not the question you should be starting. Oh, you always do this, Vin. I, 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 I liken that question to walking into a bottle store mm-hmm. and saying, should I buy bottles or cans? Mm-hmm. And that's a question you can only answer when you want to know what you want to drink and where you want to drink it. Mm. Yeah, if you're going hiking, you probably want cans and beer. If you're having a steak at home, you probably need a bottle of Shiraz. So step number one is work out what it is that you're trying to achieve. Can I just interrupt here for a minute? Because I've had some experience with the Australian Shareholders Association, and a lot of those investors have been investing for a long time prior to Mm -hmm. ETFs. And a lot of them have become very, very wealthy by just having a very good 
portfolio of stocks that they've selected themselves and which they continue to weed over a period of time. And there's no doubt that that can work for some mm. people. The real challenge is that you're not being rewarded for the risk that you're taking. When you pick a single stock, you are getting market risk, you're getting industry risk, but you're also getting idiosyncratic risks. So what is it about that particular stock will behave differently than market? Sometimes differently good, sometimes differently bad. Um, you know, Australians love to pick their bank stocks, but only two of the banks have outperformed the ASX 200 in the last 20 years. Mm. So the fewer stocks you hold, the more risk you take that you're not necessarily being rewarded for. You might win, and it is possible with the right level of research and focus to earn a higher return. Whether it's possible consistently, particularly for an amateur, is a much more nuanced question. And the fact that they got very wealthy doing it, you've got to ask, compared to what? So what's the counterfactual? Would they have done better or worse with the alternative? And the truth is, we'll never know. So yes, you can do it. It's harder work. It's more expensive. And you obviously need to get some form of diversification. And diversification doesn't mean picking four banks. And, but once you get to 20 or 30 stocks, most of that idiosyncratic risk has disappeared. So buying 30 stocks is probably not a lot of difference to buying the whole index, as long as you're picking a representative so and rebalancing your price. So... It's about return for effort and return for risk. Clearly, ETFs are not the only game in them, um, and not necessarily the best. But what we do know is that all of the research is that it is extremely difficult to outperform an index by buying those same components or a subset of those components and trading them after tax and after fees. Mm. And if you are, you're probably buying a factor. And if by a factor, I mean yeah, big companies versus small companies, value stocks versus growth stocks, high beta stocks versus low beta stocks. And most portfolios that do outperform, outperform because they're taking one of those factor risks. So a portfolio that's knee-deep in banks is by definition of value portfolio in an Australian context, which you would expect over time to outperform the index as a whole, but not necessarily consistently. So you couldn't say that it will this year or it will next year, but over time, yeah, small companies should outperform big companies, value companies should outperform growth companies, and high beta stocks should outperform low beta stocks. That's just maths. Mm. And so you just need to be careful, you know, are you the next Warren Buffett because you picked the right five stocks or did you just buy value? And most individual stock pickers tend to have a value bias because they're looking to buy undervalued stocks, which usually have a value flavor to them. And that's presuming that you've got a methodology for finding the sure. value as well. As opposed to a dartboard. Mm. <laughs> as opposed to a dartboard. So all of that says, well, if that's all hard work, and has a high probability of not outperforming after fees and taxes, 
why wouldn't I just buy the index, which now leads us into a whole bunch of other questions. Well, that's right. That's my next question. The index hugging ETF, what's its characteristic and what should people watch out for that might not be aiding their ability to make money? The first step in all of these things is asset allocation. And by that, I mean the allocation of your cash between the various asset classes. I call these the five Bs of investing. So on the growth side, there's stuff that can outperform inflation. We talk about bricks and businesses. So businesses are equities, bricks, real estate and infrastructure. And then on the defensive side, we have bullion being gold, generally, bonds, and bills being cash. And whatever you invest in, it's it's just a mishmash of all of those, or some or all of those. And choosing the right one is about getting the right risk profile to align with your personality and goals and the right return, which will then lead you to an asset. So assuming you've decided I need 40% in shares, then I need to work out, well, how much of that is in Australia, how much is overseas, how much is in small companies, how much is in big companies. And once I've done that, then I say, well, let's assume now we want to put 30% of that in Australian large company shares. So how do I now invest in Australian large company shares? I could go and buy them individually, as you suggested. I could go and buy an actively managed fund, or I could buy an index fund. If I want to choose an index fund, I have to make sure that there is an index that's both tradable and representative of what I'm trying to invest. And so for Australian large cap, we're probably talking the ASX 200, which is the, the liquid one, or the ASX 300. Um, there even the ASX 50. Or it's a little less liquid, but uh, mm. and there is... I think there is an ETF that trades the liquidity. <laughs> and then having identified an index that tracks the class you're looking at, you then need to say, well, do I buy that as a managed funds or do I buy it as an ETF? Yeah. And there are some tax advantages in having ETF. They're accessible through most to on the ASX through brokers. And so they are convenient and easy to buy. And now that brokerage is getting to be very cheap. Mm. And the management expense is becoming very expensive. That's becoming mm. the preferred way to access an index. So for Australian shares, you're probably looking at ASX 200 or ASX 300. If I want to invest in US large cap, probably looking at a, a NASDAQ or an S&P 500. If I'm looking at global shares, I'm probably looking at an MSCI developed index. Also known as MISCI. Or MISCI, yes. Um, when it comes to other asset classes like trading small caps, for example, once you get outside the 300, there is no tradable index. So how do I invest in Australian small caps? Then, well, A, there's no index, and B, there's a lot of evidence that shows that active managers can add a lot of value. So if you were investing outside the ASX 300, you almost certainly want an active manager. And that leads you into a whole bunch of, yeah, what is their philosophy? Are they a value manager? Are they an opportunistic manager? What's their investment philosophy? And who's the team? And it's much more based on individual. Because I've, well, yeah. I've been to a small cap conference recently and me meeting a couple of uh, small cap fund managers. And you've really got to trust what they're doing and their ability to do it and their talent for doing it as well in choosing these companies because it's very, very difficult to It is. And to you get a small camp, but there's the, re the rewards can yeah. be excellent. You get wild, big swings. So it certainly adds volatility to your portfolio. 
like you know it's much easier to double the value of a fifty million dollar stock than a five hundred billion dollar stock. Yeah, mature, yeah, heavyweight in the industry. So you obviously don't want to be hunting everything on that category, but it's a, it should be part of your allocation. Mm. So within your companies, you want to have some in small, some in big, some in overseas, some in value, some in growth. You're talking about asset allocation. Aren't there ETFs that give you a diversified portfolio across all of those yes, assets? Yes, there are. There are. Uh, and then Vanguard are losers. Vanguard have four at various levels of risk. And that's certainly a good way to get your allocation in a single trade. But you do need to be sure that that asset allocation is what you want. Because remember, asset allocation is 90% of your long-term returns. The rest is sort of noise. And so if you want to buy VDHG, the Vanguard High Growth Fund, for example, that's a 90-10 fund, so 90% growth, 10% bonds. I can't remember what its global domestic split is, but it does hedge some of the overseas exposure. So by choosing... BDHG as your diversified portfolio, you are buying into that particular asset allocation. And you know, well, is that is that what you want? Personally, I'm not a fan of hedging equities. In my view, is that part of why you're buying global equities is to get currency diversification. And so by hedging that... So, so hedging is just when you, yeah, so if you have an element where it's uh, converted into a local currency. Yeah. So you so, just remove that. Yeah. The so, yeah. So, so I, usually they will buy some sort of derivatives or fumes about to try and remove the impact of moving Australian dollar. Mm. Well, if, you, if the Australian dollar falls in value, which it's done over the last year, the value of your overseas asset is up. And if you hedge it, you lose that upside. On the other hand, if the currency goes, Australian currency goes up, the value of your overseas assets will fall. Mm. The interesting thing is that when times get tough and markets decline, quite often the Australian dollar also declines because money moves to the safe haven of the US dollar. And the Australian dollar is very much a commodity currency. So Mm. when markets are booming, commodities are booming, Australian dollar rises. So hedging is a cost that we don't believe that you should be spending. Bonds are different. So if you're buying overseas bonds, you should be hedging those because bonds are about giving you defensiveness so you don't want currency risk. And historically, the hedge has also increased your yield because Australian interest rates are usually above global interest rates. That's not true at the moment. So we are actually below the US at the moment, which is a historical anomaly. Mm. So short answer is, yes, it can be a quick way of getting a multi-asset class option, as long as that's the allocation that you actually want. Or need or require for the best result. That's right. And the products like the Vanguard one have a a stable asset allocation. A lot of multi-asset funds have variable splits, so they try to time the market by moving the asset allocation. That's what's called tactical asset allocation, where you move it in response to the markets. Mm. What is the asset allocation that they're offering you? And does that align with what you want? And are you going to get it all the time? So it's the major function that you've got to think about is your age. Uh, age is important. But not the only factor? But not the only factor. Of course. I would, would, would generally start with risk profile. So how tolerant of, are you of risk? And how what's your capacity to wear that risk? And so... 
risk is around variability of outcomes. So people sometimes think about risk in the stock market as the risk of the company I'm buying going out of business. And you lose all your dollars. And you lose all your money. Whereas risk is really about the probability of me achieving my goal. And okay, that's another definition of risk you've just thrown in there. <laughs> and, and because yeah, the finance industry thinks of risk as the same as volatility, yeah. as the amount it goes up. Well, they, they do. But it, yeah, well, they do sort of align because the greater the volatility or variability returns, the greater the variability in your end goal. So, if your goal is to achieve fifty thousand dollars in ten years' time, the ending value is a function of volatility. Where it's ended up at that particular yeah. point in time. What, yeah. Yeah. What, what's happened on the 3,650th yeah. day mm-hmm. and how critical is that day to your goal? So volatility matters. People will say, oh, volatility doesn't matter unless you sell. And whilst that might be true on a specific day, you haven't crystallized the, this variability. When you're looking forward to achieving a goal, the range of outcomes in 10 years or whatever will be wider the higher the volatility. So volatility does matter, but not for the reason most people think. And of course, return comes with volatility. The higher the return you expect, the higher the volatility you have to tolerate. So that goes to what's the probability of me achieving my goal? And what is the risk that I will, my emotions would get in the way of me staying the course? So 100% equity portfolio will have the highest expected return. But the volatility that it comes with is significantly higher than, say, a 90% equities portfolio with a bit of infrastructure and a bit of real estate, Mm. which by moving down, you reduce the variability and you don't give away too much on the expected return, but you narrow the gap and you increase the likelihood that you're going to stay at course. That's the secret to success in in, in investing. So having some sort of ballast in your portfolio. Yeah. So. Along with your tolerance and ability to yeah. bear it. And of course, last 15 years, or 13 years, 15 years since the GFC, we haven't really had a massive long-lasting downturn. So if your only experience of investing is the last 15 years, everyone's asking themselves, well, why aren't I 100% growth? And that's fine until we do have a downturn. And then, you know, you'll, many people would give up that, won't actually achieve that extra return because of their behavior along the way. So, you know, when I'm talking to our members about investing, you know, one of the things that the market's going to give you the return. My job is to make sure that return ends up in your pocket. And the reasons it won't end up in your pocket is that people tend to invest more when markets are going up and invest less when markets are going down, which you should be doing the opposite. And people do sell when they shouldn't. And people try to second guess when I should rebalance, going, oh, I should let this growth run a bit more because the market's going well. And those emotional behaviours are what makes the difference between successful investing and less efficient investing. Mm. And so the price that you pay for that will more than reward you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Are you confused about how to invest? LifeSherpa can ease the burden of having to decide for yourself. Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. Just speaking about the idea of bonds and real estate providing some sort of balance in your portfolio, has that that's actually not been the case over the last couple of years? Yeah, actually. That, so it hasn't actually helped out? No. In fact, if you've been in, I mean, bonds have had a horrible run over the last few years as interest rates have moved back to something more normal. Don't try and explain how bonds work. <laughs> that's a whole episode. And it's- but generally, as interest rates go up, the value of bonds go down. And sometimes that's what you want because generally interest rates go up in a time of inflation. Yeah. So that's where shares should benefit, particularly real estate and infrastructure should benefit from inflation. But you're right. So bonds have had a horror year. I think 2023, 2022 was the first year where both US bonds and the S&P 500 both returned double digit negative returns. Mm. Highly unusual. And similarly with real estate and infrastructure, I mean, both of those were hammered during COVID. Obviously, people stopped driving on toll roads, people stopped going into the office, people stopped visiting shops, so property values plummeted. These assets are written down now. So that was all, so both of those were negative when you would expect them to have been a bit less volatile when COVID hit. And neither really recover that well because both are interest rate sensitive. Mm. And I think there's still a lot of question marks about where particularly commercial and retail real estate will settle. So yeah, there's a reason why we say past performance is no indicator of future performers. And that's because you can use yesterday's returns to predict tomorrow's returns. But why we look at the past is that it tells us about how things behave generally and how things behave relative to each other. doesn't mean that they will always do that. This is a game of probabilities. And so you would want to try to stack the deck in your favour. You won't be right all the time. If you were, there'd be no risk and therefore no return. So it's about going, well, we would generally expect bonds and equities to move in slightly in different directions. We would expect real estate to be less volatile than shares. We would expect infrastructure to perform well during inflation and badly during rising interest rates. We would expect gold to be a safe haven. And you can certainly see that in the COVID dip. If you go back to February 21st, 2020, the market peaked and dived and then sort of recovered by June 30. But the gold line just goes straight across that deep V. So doesn't mean it's always going to do that, um, but this is about stacking the deck in your favour and, and making sure that you're being rewarded for the risk that you're taking. And so we talk about risk-adjusted returns. And so per unit risk you take, a 90% growth portfolio should give you a higher risk-adjusted return than 100% one. That doesn't mean it'll give you a higher return. It just means that the reward you get for that extra little bit of risk is lower than the risk you, the return you got for the previous 10% risk that you took. And so when you're 
choosing to invest, you need to decide what you're trying to achieve. So is your goal just to get the highest return possible? But that's what most people would say by default. Yeah. just want the highest return. Yeah. And the consequence of doing that is you're going to therefore take higher risk with all the baggage that goes with that. The alternative is to say, I want to take just enough risk to achieve my goal. Mm. So if I need a 5% return to achieve my goal, do I really need to invest in 100% equities, which might give me a 9 or 10 expected return, but could give me negative 5 to... Depending on the particular point in time, yeah. Or the third option is, do I want to take... Do I want to just get the maximum return for the level of risk I'm prepared to take? And that's sort of the sweet spot in the middle. So it's that balance between expected return and volatility. And the allocation across these asset classes is how you lower your volatility for any given return. Mm. I know you're a big fan of the FIRE movement and you lurk in rooms in chat rooms about financial independence. I've, I've had my own odd argument with software bros on Reddit. <laughs> There's a belief amongst many in those community that, okay, you might be a PAYG salary yep. earner and that you want to start investing outside of super and that the easiest way to do it is to do it straight into an index hanging ETF, whether it's an Australian yep. one or an international one. It's But you think it's more complicated than... Well, it's more nuanced. It's going to work. It's more nuanced. It will work in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you're looking yeah, if, you go right buy, if you go and buy VDHG, you're not going to go broke. You're going to be better off than if you'd not invested. Hmm. The argument... And dollar cost average into yeah. it. Yeah. So all of those things, you know, they're all better than spinning it in the pub on a Friday night. There's no one's going to argue with that. The Margin, n- marginally better. Margin. <laughs> the nuance, though, is are you taking more risk than you need to take for that return? Mm. And will your behavior actually allow you to bank So you're not going to jump, jump yeah. as soon as it goes, we have another. And I have yet to see a DIY portfolio that couldn't be returned improved either in same return for lower volatility or higher return for same volatility. And that's, I think, the, the key to it. So if you read J.L. Collins, for example, uh, he's written a book called A Simple Path to Wealth. And so his view is that you should punt it all on VTSAX, which is the U.S. equivalent of VTI. So it's a U.S. total start market return. He, he leaves out the US bit and just calls it a total stock market return. But of course, that's the, the American-centric view of the world. But that will lead to a lower return at higher volatility than a diversified portfolio constructed properly. So the book is called A Simple Path to Wealth, not The Optimal Path to Wealth. Mm. And so clearly, if you put enough money aside, it will work. Could you get the same result... By putting less money aside, the answer is yes. That's the key to this, that planning for your money is a series of trade-offs. So if we talk about planning for retirement, that's a trade-off between how much I spend while I'm working against how much I spend when I'm retired. And there's two ways you can do that. One, I can save more and therefore spend less while I'm working, or I can get a better return. 
And I like to use the term better return rather than higher return because it, it brings that risk and variability. Oh, you put a value judgment on it, don't you? I mean, it's not my value. Mm. It's the investor's value. My appetite for risk at my stage of life is not necessarily the same as yours or, or the investor. A 20-year-old with $5,000 to invest probably has an entirely different profile than a someone two years out from retirement with a million dollars. You know, the consequences of getting it wrong are entirely different. Mm. The upside of hunting everything on some lithium stock on five grand might very well outweigh the the risk of toasting the entire five thousand dollars mm. when you're twenty five. But that's not the right answer when you're sixty five or you're thirty and saving for your kids' high school fees. Mm where you can't change the year that Sophie starts year, year seven just because the market tank. So that's an entirely different saving of objectives. And yeah, so you've got three broad levers you can pull. Yeah. How much do I save? So how much do I set aside? How long am I going to set it aside for? And what return I can expect? And the more you would want return, the more of the heavy lifting you want the return to do, the more risk you have to be prepared to take and the more uncertain achieving that outcome is. So you can move any two of those three levers. And that's the real piece about investing that a lot of people jump straight for. I've got $5,000 to invest. What should I buy? Mm. Whereas there's a couple of uh, steps. There's a lot of steps in the way. And the answer will not be the same for everyone. So what about someone who's, say, in their 40s, 50s, and who is starting to invest on the side out of their superannuation? Should they be looking at the the old 60-40 portfolio, you know, 60 in, yeah, um, in equities and 40 in bonds or something yeah, I of mean, that the, nature? The, the 60-40 portfolio has been a bit of a, um, a casualty of the easy money over the last few years. So if your only experience of investing is the last 15 years, 60-40 looks pretty... Dismal. Dismal. Mm. It's pretty conservative, but you know it's worked really well for the last 80 years for the right person. So that's a bit of a... Yeah, the old rule, when I went to business school, there was a rule that says you should have 100 minus your age and bonds. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which says that if you're 65, you should have 35% in bonds, which is probably not a bad answer. If I... Sorry, that's the other way around, isn't it? In shares, 60. 100 minus your age... Yeah, it doesn't want to work, though, for a 20-year-old. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, n- most of these rules of thumb don't actually survive extremes. So if you're 20 and you're saving by your first home and you want to do that in five years, well, maybe 100% equities isn't the right answer. Mm. Unless you're prepared to make five years, seven years if the market tanks or buy a smaller house in year five. Of course, the uncertainty over the price of a house might be bigger than the uncertainty of that outcome. So that's why what you put your saving this money for really drives the vision. And of course, your 65-year-old about to retire probably doesn't have a lot of capacity to recover. Mm. And so the consequence of being in too much growth at a bad time in market early in retirement means you get to spend less for the next 35 years. Mm. So, or work for another year or two. Work. <laughs> no, right. Yeah. Which is easier said than done. Um, yeah. It's easy for a 40 year old to say that. But, you know, two thirds of Australians retire at a time not of their choosing. 
So you might not actually have the opportunity to work those two years. And that's either because, you know, they get crook, redundant, can't worry, skilled. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, or family circumstances, you you might have a caring, caring responsibilities Mm -hmm. in either parents or spouse. So it's easy to say, I'll just work that two years when you're 40. Mm. Doing that in reality at 65 can be can be harder, which is probably why our average retirement age is still in the late 50s. That's probably not because people are choosing to do that. It's that that's just how it works out. Mm. So understanding yourself is almost more important than understanding the market. You can buy market expertise, but it's hard to buy understanding if you sell it. The level of the ASX 200, or the all odds, yep. whichever measure you want to yep. take, hasn't changed. I mean, we're basically at the same level as in 2007. So obviously dividends have played a huge role in the returns. Yep. Would you be as well off, if you just took the dividends every year and didn't reinvest them, would you be basically, would your money have eroded in value over that time, sitting in an ETF like that? Uh, well, your capital would largely be unchanged. I think the level is actually about the same now as it was in 2007. And the markets go sideways for long periods of time. That's some. And of course, it's been up in the meantime. Not that, not that, not that much further yeah. up. And it hasn't, it hasn't hit 8,000. No, that's true. Mm. Um, but our market is very much a dividend-driven market. Mm. So you can't really compare that. Looking at price indexes or indices is a very dangerous way to look at I always look at the accumulation index and which includes the dividends. Yeah. It doesn't include the value of the franking though, which is yeah, particularly important for retirees. And harder to work out because it depends on yeah. tax rolls yeah. impossible. Mm. So you would still have made, yeah, five, six percent of your money in an era of three percent inflation. That's two percent. That's not a bad and you've thrown a bit of franking. That's certainly not insignificant. I mean what's the alternative? Stick it in the bank and make one over that period or two. So, yeah, you need to be, over any long-term investment horizon, you need to be substantially in growth investments, which are investments that are capable of delivering a return in excess of inflation. They don't always. I mean, if you were a Japanese investor in 1989, on an accumulation basis, you were now ahead. But, you know, it took decades um, 1929 to 1942. Um, yeah, these th- there are sometimes big cycles in markets. The Australian stock market has returned an average annual return of 13% for 122 years. If you invested $100 on the 1st of January 1900 and kept it today, you would have realised 10% because of the ups and downs. And there's only one year where the return was actually 13%. Don't ask me when it was, but there's only been one year. We've had 23 of those 122 years have been negative. 23 of them have been more, 24% plus. So there is a reason why you get a return above inflation, and that's because you're taking risk. And that's a risk that you have to take because the alternative of having inflation whittle away your money is just so unpalatable. Mm. So there's many products where you can get a portfolio set up for you based on your needs and so forth. And Life Sherpa yep. has these, let me just check, the Life Sherpa Smart Investment Portfolios. That's tell, right. tell us about those. So, so we offer four managed portfolios of largely ETFs. And we eat our own cooking here. So 
yeah, these are portfolios that we started with a asset allocation in mind and then built a 90% growth, a 70% and a 50% growth portfolio to suit various people's needs. So they are composed largely of ETFs with the exception of small caps. Small caps, where we use a couple of active managers. We have two in that category to get complementary investment philosophies. But yeah, we've got an allocation to 300, S&P 500 in the US, MSCI Global, some emerging markets, infrastructure, real estate, gold, bonds, and a little bit of cash. And you can you just go buy direct, or you can talk to an advisor and work out what the right answer for you is. But it's certainly been designed that somebody can you know, use the risk profiler on our website, use our money personality test, and choose their own portfolio. And you can well recommend the, those uh, tools. Will recommend a portfolio. Well, they will. They will give you the information to allow you to do that. We will roll out a a robo advice piece in the future. But right now, I hate that term. Whatever. Yes, I don't like it, <laughs> and I prefer the the term invest boss. But that will help you choose. But right now, you can just go and pick one of the four for yourself and competitively priced for a managed individual portfolio. And what's the URL? It's so they've had invest.lifesherpa.au. You can actually get there from our ordinary homepage, which is lifesherpa.com.au. And just click on the Get Started Now button. Hmm. Interesting. Vince Scully, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Phil. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.